Welcome to the Milestone Church Podcast. We're in a series called Heart Matters. The things that we care about most are in our hearts. So in this series, we'll talk about practical ways to guard what's in your heart so you can impact what's in your life. Good morning to you. Glad to be with you. Thank you very much for having me. I was here last year, and your staff is outstanding. Outstanding. The way they have hosted me, of course, I love your pastor and his beautiful wife, Brandy, and Jeff, the executive pastor here, and Steve and Chris and everybody. The worship and song team, you all do things at a very, very high level. And um, I'm privileged to be able to add something to the journey that is Milestone Church in this city. I'm grateful for your commitment to the well-being of the city, to be a church that does more than just exist, to be people that, that do more than just come to church, but to really impact the community. I'm grateful for the witness you are to this Dallas-Fort Worth area and believe that God, by his grace, is really going to extend his kingdom through your efforts, through your life, through your words. I've been tasked with the responsibility of continuing your series on heart matters, and today I'm going to talk about spiritual family. But before I do so, I thought it'd be a good idea for me to let you know the family that makes up Brett. So this is my group of people. Um, <clears throat> to my, oh gosh, in the picture left is my beautiful wife, Cynthia, of 32 years. She is a... Uh, Finest woman since Eve. Uh, in the picture right, to my right, is my, my daughter-in-law, Elizabeth, who is married to the man above her, Joseph. Joseph is 31. They both live in Brooklyn, New York, doing very well there. I don't know why they want to live in New York, but okay. Picture left is our adopted daughter, Meredith, a girl who was 16 years old. Daddy was 15, came to our church 26 years ago and said, could anybody adopt our baby? I'm eight months pregnant. In a month, we did all the home studies. Cynthia and I said, we'll do it. We brought this little girl home from the hospital. She's been a blessing to our lives. That's Meredith, 26. To her left in the picture is our natural-born daughter, Brooke. She's 22. She's a senior at Liberty University. We'll graduate in December. To her left is Tellus. Tellus is 24, graduate of Virginia Commonwealth University, and he is my youth pastor in our church. It's fabulous, just a great young man. Above him and to his right is Grant. He's my baby. He's 19. He's a freshman at Liberty University. To his right is, is Garrison. Uh, Garrison. Garrison is married and about to give Cynthia and me our first grandchild, which is cool. Happy about that. And to his right is Brian. Brian is 28. He works in an industry that's kind of a headhunting thing, whereby you look for employees, hire them, and then lease them out to the government, high security personnel. So those are the people who are called by my name. Turn with me over to the book of John. We're going to look at a large portion of scripture in John chapter 20, verse 11 through 18. John Chapter 20, verses 11 through 18. The title of the message is Spiritual Family. It says, But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping, and so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. 
And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken my Lord away, and I don't know where they have lain him. 14, when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and, and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Verse 17, and Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have yet ascended to my father. But go to my brethren and, and say to them, I ascend to my father and your father and my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene came, verse 18, announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. Lord, help us as we study your word. There are three things on this passage about which I'd like to speak to you. One, how detached Mary is. Two, how Jesus calls, and with the intent of that calling, it's more than just recognizing somebody's identity, but it's actually defining their identity. And then three, with that calling, he's calling people not just to himself, but he's calling people to one another. Family is really important. God thought it was so important that he said, let us make man in our image in Genesis 1, according to our likeness. And he said, he made them male and female. He created them. And so when God thought about the best way he could portray himself to the earth, it was through a family. Now there's no question that his image can be seen and should be through the individual witness we have toward people in the earth and whatever we carry with our brothers and sisters. Folks ought to be able to know that Jesus is alive through our individual lives. Yet there is something about the institution of family that is marked differently than somebody else's personal witness. That when somebody walks over the threshold of your house and they experience what is supposed to be an outpost of heaven in your home, without you saying a word, glory is now confronting them because they see the image, they feel the image, they experience the image of God with a functioning husband that is loving his wife, with a wife who loves her husband, with parents that are teaching and training their children, not just providing care and protection and provision, that they are actually pr producing something that looks like heaven on earth. Family is really important to God. And it's not just the nuclear family. It's the family that's extended beyond just those who are called by your name. Because the family that he creates is the one that Paul prayed for in Ephesians chapter 3. I bow my knees before the Father in heaven from whom the whole family in heaven and earth derives its name. He's saying that there is a family in the earth that goes beyond just the genetics, the DNA. There is a spiritual family in the earth that is not only here but there. People who have gone on from this planet and he says, I bow my knees before the Father so that the, the realization of the family here and the family there can be made one. Those who are there understand it. Those who are here, not so much. We have a hard time trying to figure out, you mean you want me to be family with them? 
connected to them. Lord, do you know what they did to me? Do you know how they hurt me? Do you know what they said to me, Lord? I mean, I know you do because you're God. You know everything. But I'm just letting you know that I know you need to know like I need to know you need to know. God, really? Them? Them? Yeah. This is why God gives us forgiveness. So we can fix all the problems that would stop us from becoming family. This is why it gives us patience, so that we can endure with people. Now remember, every time you're thinking about that person that just came in your mind when I, when I mentioned him, her, you want me to be with them? Remember, you are coming up in somebody's mind when I say that. We always think it's their problem, but you are somebody else's problem. Indeed, the dear people who are watching online, you too. And the 1230 folks, welcome. We're glad to have you. But all of us need to understand that family is this thing we got to work for. We are ushered into it. We are born into it. There's nothing we can do about it, whether it's natural or spiritual. You are birthed into this family. But after you were birthed, you got to work at relationships to make sure they're like this rather than like this. you got to work at it. And God's given us tools to make that happen. And everything about what it means to be family is practice for what we need to do for the world. Practice. Jesus had a very eclectic relational group called the disciples. They were all Jewish, monoethnic. And there's a reason for that because the promises that were transferred down from Abraham all the way to what Jesus was going to do as the Messiah needed to be fleshed out first in the Jewish root and then expanded to the Gentile branches. And so they all had to be Jewish. But Jesus did not neglect the idea that diversity needed to be a part of his, his selection. And I mean, he spiced the pot. So you had some people that you figure out how to work together. You got Peter and Andrew, they're brothers. And you got James and John who were brothers. And those four seemed to have a business in fishing together. All good. They worked together, they, they lived in the same neighborhood, cool. And then you've got some others who are from the same region. In fact, most of the disciples were from the region of Galilee. Most of them. The only one who wasn't was Judas Iscariot. And, and his last name is not Iscariot. It described the region from which he, he was, a place called Kirioth. And it's just between Jerusalem and, and Galilee, about halfway. But everybody else was from the northern region of Israel. So you had Nathaniel, uh, also called Bartholomew. You had Philip. You had Thomas. You had another James in there. Uh, you had a guy named Judas, who was also called Thaddeus. You had Judas Iscariot. And then you had two guys, Simon the Zealot. And then you had... Matthew, the tax collector. Now, all the other guys were from the same region. They kind of probably knew one another. At least their families did. Judas Iscariot would have been the wild card. But then you had these two guys that, though they may have known one another, probably didn't like one another at all. And remember, Jesus could have chosen anybody he wanted. And he, he specifically decided, you two I want in my group. So he chose Simon the Zealot. Now, he's called the zealot because zealots were those people who were striving to make Israel free. And not by election, not by bureaucracy, not by voting, but by force, by violence. That was their method of choice. The Romans would have called Simon a terrorist. He was violently trying to figure out how in the world can we bring the monarchy of David back 
and he hated Rome and anybody who sympathized with it. He didn't care what family you were from. He didn't care if you were Jewish. If you aligned with Rome, you were the enemy. And then you got Matthew, who was a tax collector. And, and, and for whom was he collecting taxes? Rome. Oh, tax collectors were seen to be the worst of the worst. They even had their own designation as sinful. We see it in scripture. We read it in such a way that it's kind of just religious. But in the minds of the Jewish people, you've got to understand what they're saying here. There's one passage of scripture in Matthew chapter 18 where Jesus said, if you find a guy who's in sin, take somebody to him. If he doesn't listen to him, take another guy. If he doesn't listen to him, take some people from the church. If he doesn't listen to all of those folk, treat him as a tax gatherer and a sinner. So you had sinners, murderers, thieves, women who worked at night. And then you had tax gatherers. You could be all those people sinners and be better than the tax gatherers. They had their own designation of bad. Everybody hated them because they took money from the Jewish people and gave it to the Romans. And generally speaking, they didn't take just enough to give to the Romans to write them out. They took more, as evidenced by Zacchaeus. Then when Jesus comes through Jericho, there's this guy, Zacchaeus, who's a tax collector. He wants to know what all, what all the hubbub is about. He sees Jesus. He understands who he is a little bit. He realizes he's a famous character. This Messiah thing was surrounding his personality. He can't see him, though, because he's so short. Gets up in a tree to try to see Jesus. Jesus sees him up in the tree and says, I'm going to eat at your house today, which made all the religious people mad because tax co co collectors had their own designation of sinful. How could a righteous man, a good man, the Messiah, go to a tax collector's house We'd rather have him go to a, a lady who works at night. A murderer's house. A thief, not a tax. Oh, and they were mad. What does Zacchaeus say as soon as Jesus walks in the house? If I've defrauded anybody, I will pay them back fourfold. And I will give half of my possessions to the poor. What do you mean, if? That's like what people say when they've called you bad names, if I offended you. <laughs> you did, you did, don't say if, just apologize. Of course he did or he, would, he wouldn't have mentioned it. That's what they did and they could do it without impunity or with impunity because if you tried to get the tax collector, then Rome would come and get you. So they, they could do what they wanted. Everybody hated tax collectors. Matthew, come with me. <laughs> Can you imagine what the meals were like between Simon the Zealot and Matthew? I imagine Matthew probably slept with one eye open. I wonder if Simon's really sanctified on the inside enough yet. <laughs> I wonder if he, you know, is, is he listening to what Jesus says? Is he listening? Because I don't know, that brother surely doesn't like me. And then Matthew probably took more than he should have from everybody on the team. Everybody on the team hated Matthew. But what is Matthew? Practice. Because Jesus said, you think it's hard to love each other. Hmm. I want you to love your enemies. So practice. And God wonderfully and mercifully gives you a lot of Matthews.
So many Matthews. Those Matthews are those people that when you see in church, you run to the other side of the room. If they're in small group, you try to find another one. You do everything you can to try to avoid them because that one there just gets on your nerves. You cannot stand it. Lord, really? I mean, listen, I, I won't hate them. I forgive them, but I don't want to be their friend. I don't want to be their buddy. Let me, let me just keep my distance. I won't hurt them. Practice. Jesus is interested in family beyond those who have your same DNA. And he put these people together so that they would have practice at learning what it meant to love each other so that when folks came and said, I'm going to put you on a cross, they could actually pray for them in the process. They've been practicing what it meant to love the unlovable. Family's important. Super important. Here we have Mary at the tomb. And Mary is pretty much inconsolable. She's out of her mind with grief. Remember, the idea of death not being final is something normal for us as Christians, but not for them. Death was final. And this woman, from her own experience, she had prepared the body that was dead. There was a process through which you would kind of mummify the remains of the person who had passed. And Jesus had passed. And, and, and that night, Mary and the other women would come together and they would do their best to try to prepare the body for burial, but they couldn't finish because it was the Sabbath coming up and they couldn't work on the Sabbath, so they had to wait a whole day until the next morning to come in and finish the body. So she had seen, unlike anybody else, and felt no life in this thing. And although Jesus had said on a number of occasions, the chief priests and scribes are going to treat me really bad, and on the third day I'll rise. He'd said it enough to them whereby they should have gotten it. They didn't get it. They were as dense as you and I. We just don't get it when God promises us stuff and the circumstances look different. We still cower. We still have issues of doubt and unbelief, even though he said it. So it's important that we not look at the disciples with any kind of hypocrisy because we live in the environment where we have so much more word than they did. And yet we still don't believe what God said because we look at the circumstances rather than what he said. Important. Mary didn't get it. And Mary is one of a bunch of Marys. I mean, the New Testament had a lot, at least those who were following Jesus. You had Mary, who was a sister of Martha and Lazarus. You had Mary, the mother of James and John. You had Mary, the mother of Jesus. You had Mary, who was married to Clopas. And then you had this Mary, Mary of Magdala. Mary of Magdala was different than all the other Marys, primarily because all the other Marys are defined by their relationships. At least that's how we know them in Scripture. So we have Mary, who is the mother of James and John. We have Mary, who is married to Clopas. We have Mary, the mother of Jesus. We have Mary, who is the sister of Martha and the sister of Lazarus. But we have Mary of Magdala. So she's defined by a city, not by a people, not by a person which tells you something, that she was detached. She probably didn't have any kids, and neither did she have a husband. Yet she had resources by which she was supporting Jesus. So she was a part of the band of women from, from the resources that would support the ministry of Christ, which gives you the sense that she was probably married before. 
in that most women during that time, unfortunately, were not upwardly mobile with respect to occupation. It's not like they could ascend to managerial levels and make a whole lot of money. So the sense is probably that she was a widow and that her husband had righteously left an inheritance for her. And out of that, out of those resources, she was in supporting Christ. Because she was known by her city and not by a relationship, we get the sense that she was probably disconnected from most people. Combine that with the fact that we also have testimony in Luke that Mary of Magdala had seven demons cast from her. <laughs> that's, pretty, that's pretty substantial. I mean, that, that, that's, a, that's an eyebrow raiser because one demon will mess up your life. Ruin your day after day after day. One demon will do that. Two will cause you to be institutionalized. You may be able to manage one every once in a while. Two, mm -mm. seven. Whew. I recently came from Israel, went in February, and we, we visited Magdalene. They've unearthed it. Ah, it's an amazing city. But the cities back then were not like the cities we have today, at least those towns were not like what we would consider a town today, very small, probably smaller than the property you have here as a church, maybe 20, 30 acres in size. All the houses were very close together. The streets were no more than eight to 10 feet across, no cars, obviously, big enough for three or four people to walk by one another or a donkey and a person, not large. And the, the houses usually shared a wall because it was very expensive to build a house. You had to have a stonemason. And you don't want to build two walls when you can have one that will support both. So they were kind of like townhomes. If you had a house that was disconnected, you were fairly wealthy. But it was a small environment, which means everybody knew everybody else's business. And if you had seven devils in your life, folks are talking about you all the time. You talk about detached. Not only did she have nobody in her life of significance, but she was living in a town that probably did not like her. At best, scared of her. And here comes Jesus, and we don't have the account of what he did to deliver her from those things. We just have the testimony that it happened. Can you imagine how grateful she was? Somebody cared for me enough to approach me to help me, not to rebuke me, not to be mad at me, not to be afraid of me. And he delivered me from all the stuff. And I don't have anybody in this town that I can call a, a friend or family. Hey, can, can I follow you? Because I don't have anybody. I got nobody. And she was so grateful. She not only followed him, Jesus led her, but she supported him out of her resources. And now he's gone. She's the only single woman in the entire troop. And we have no record that any of these other guys have a clue with what to do with her. She's probably older, so maybe not the marrying kind. Yeah, they're looking for a younger woman who can bear children. She doesn't have any kind of real connection with the other women as much as she'd like because they all have relationships with husbands or sons or daughters. She feels really by herself now that the one who set her free is gone. The account of the resurrection and the revelation that Jesus is gone 
from the tomb goes like this. The women came a day earlier, a day later, to the tomb. The women, not just Mary, the women. And you have to piece together all the Gospels to get this. They came in order to finish preparing the body. They see the stone rolled away, and an angel says, he's not here. He's risen, just like he said. They don't hear most of that. They just hear, he's not here. They run back, tell the disciples, wow, Jesus is gone. We don't know what happened. James, excuse me, Peter and John run to the tomb. They see it just as the women had said. We think Mary followed them after she went back with the other women, followed them. Peter and John see that Jesus is not there. They run back, tell the disciples, he gone. Mary stays at the tomb. The therapeutic effort that she was going to put forth of caring for the body would heal her soul better. Everybody deals with grief differently. This is how she was going to deal with it. If I can, if I can at least care for him like he cared for me, even in death, that will help me because nobody cared for me like he did. And now she was robbed of that opportunity. Inconsolable, detached, depressed, despondent. So bad off is she that God doesn't send one angel. He sends two. <laughs> two angels just to minister to Mary. That's how much he cares about this girl. She would have found out later at any point, but there's something about a, a person who has been delivered from so much stuff like she was delivered. When you, when you get free from, from demons, it's important that you recognize the freedom, but it's also important that you recognize you still need healing. Freedom and healing are two different things. You can be delivered from that which has oppressed you, but you have some things that are miswired in your soul and your mind about how you respond to people and circumstances. Those things still need to be addressed. And because I pastored a really long time, I know that people take a long time to heal. It's not overnight. They've got to learn new habit patterns, new ways of thinking, new ways of acting, new ways of speaking, not building up defenses all the time when somebody says that, not hearing things that people aren't saying when they say whatever they say, new ways of doing everything. And the only one who understood her best was the one she thought was gone. Those knuckleheads of the 11 left, not them. They're men. Now, I don't know what in the world caused her to have seven devils. I don't know. They don't, devils just don't come to people without cause. They can't. They have to have some entryway into somebody's life. I don't know what happened to Mary. But because I've pastored long enough, I know some man had something to do with it. Now, there are women out there who can get involved in a lot of stuff. And they can conjure up all kind of things on their own that require some degree of attention by the enemy. I get it. But there are very few I've ever met with that can't point to some stupid XY that hurt them. Some testosterone-filled idiot who made them feel less than. My sense is that some man had something to do with these seven. And the 11 that were left had no clue how to help this woman. No clue. Listen, I, I've been married to my woman for 32 years. I still don't know who she is. <laughs> I ain't got a clue, y'all. I ain't got a clue. 
Now, maybe y'all have a better marriage than my wife and I. We got a great marriage. We really do. But we're not that couple that finishes one another's sentences. You could never describe us as soulmates. We are as different as night and day. We don't have the same likes. We don't have the same tendencies. Every time, after 32 years, I say something. And then she says something in response to what I said. And my brain's going, how'd you get there? I don't know how in the world you thought that's what I meant when I said what I said. I, I can't figure you out at all, at all. And it's not because she's strange. That's not the issue. I'm stupid. I just, I just don't have enough brain cells to be able to relate to her like I should. Listen, all these guys, I mean, men, men, men you know, we just, 11, trying to figure out how to deal with, and this is why Mary was at the tomb. You're the only one who understood me. You're the only one who understood me and all of my problems. I don't know what to do. Two angels show up, two. And they say, why are you weeping? Why? She said, oh, they've taken my Lord away. Now, the angels were sent by God. They had an assignment. But I have a feeling there was this conversation after they conversed with Mary that went something like this. Father, we did our job. I don't know what else to do. She, we can't help her. We can't help her. We can't help her. She's beyond us. We, we got to come back. I'm sorry. We did the best we could. There's some things angels can't fix in your life. Only Jesus. And he will fix it. You hang around and wait long enough and cry out to him, he will fix it. He will show up in your life and fix it. You wait for him, he will fix it. She's at the tomb. The angels go back to the father. And all of a sudden, somebody shows up she hasn't seen before. Now she's seen him, but she ain't seen him like this. He says, same thing the angels say, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? Sir, if you've taken him away, supposing him to be the gardener, if you've taken him, and she has no context. I mean, she really believes he's dead. So why would she believe he's alive except that she expressed faith in what he said and she hadn't done that. So she only believes he's dead. So he can't be talking. If you've taken him away, tell me, I'll go get him. And then uh, he says her name like only he can say it, Mary. Something about when God calls your name. It's not just recognition. It's identification. It's a changing of your perception on how he views you. My name is Brett. And um, my mama named me Brett because she liked the TV program. In 1958, a show came out called The Maverick Brothers. I was born in 60. And there were two brothers, Brett and Bart Maverick. Brett seemed to be really handsome. <laughs> My mama liked him so much, when I came out, she named me Brett. Now, I've, since then, I've gone to look up the derivation of names and where they come from and what they mean. It, it, the name Brett can only be described to either a person that comes from the Brittany coast of France or somebody who is from Britain. 
neither of which I am. So she named me after this guy. Now, on the show, Brett and Bart Maverick, the brothers, are riverboat gamblers. They're swindlers. They're cheating people out of their money every day. That's their livelihood. And so when I got of age, I kind of said, really, mama? I mean, that's the best you could come up with. She liked the show so much. My brother came five years after me. She named him. <laughs> True story. You can't make that up. My name has meant very little to me other than what my mother has called me, and for that I'm grateful. But when he called my name in 1981, you know me? You got a lot of stuff to do in the universe. You call my name? That means you, you understand where I've been and where I am. You probably know what I need to do and where I need to. Thank you. When he calls you, it's not just to say, hey. It's not recognizing that you actually have a name. It's more about who he believes you to be, that he recognizes where you are, and he wants to address your situation and help you get out of where you are to get to your tomorrow. When, he, when she heard Mary, she heard God calling. Rabboni, the one who has meant more to me than anybody else who delivered me from all of my junk. You, you came here for me? You came alive and stayed around for me? You stayed... Now, it doesn't say it, but somewhere between Mary and stop clinging to me, the distance was decreased between the two. So much so that Jesus had to say, stop clinging to me. You ever been in one of those moments when somebody gives you an awkward hug? You know, that hug where you're done. <laughs> the other party keeps holding on and you're thinking love you too okay we're done now that's what you want to say but you don't want to spoil their moment they're trying to communicate something to you that you didn't know needed to be communicated and Mary was saying this I lost you once I ain't letting you go. I ain't letting you go. And I beg you, when he calls your name, hold on until you make him say that. Stop clinging to me. Now, the interesting thing is this. God cared about Mary so much that he put off an appointment to the father to sit down with her. He said, stop clinging to me. I got to go to daddy. Girl, you got to let me go. You got to let me go. I haven't even been to the father yet. God cared so much for this girl. Why? Because her soul was so fractured. She had not yet been fully healed. My, my assumption is that he showed up because he didn't want her to, be, to go downwardly spiral into a place of depression any longer. The disciples, these wonderful knuckleheads back there, they didn't hang out at the tomb. They weren't trying to figure out what to do next. They were. 
but in a different way. Mary needed help now, and she wanted to be as close to whatever the, the, the remnants of his presence were like. God saw all of that. Ladies, gentlemen, God sees, and he makes extraordinary provision for your help. Extraordinary. Girl, you got to let me go because I got to go to the Father. But I got a message for you. I want you to do this for me. I want you to go to, go to my brother and tell them this. I go to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. Now, I don't believe, I don't believe that Jesus was just making Mary an echo of his voice. I believe he was actually speaking to her. He wasn't saying, just quote me on this, please, for them. I think he was talking to her. And as a result of talking to her, out of her own personal experience and what this meant to her, she would now tell them. Meaning this, Mary, I know you don't have anybody on the planet who really cares about you. At least you don't think so. But I want you to know that you're in a family now. Because I'm going to my father and yours. When God thinks about calling, and remember, this is the most important day in human history. No day was more important than this one, the resurrection. And what Jesus says at this moment echoes throughout history as primary. He's not only trying to get you connected to him, he's trying to get you connected to them, people, family. I go to my father and your father. Tell my brethren if they're my brethren and it's my father and your father, they're your brethren. I'm putting you in family on the day of the resurrection. Are you listening to me? On the day of the resurrection, this girl was no more a relational orphan. No longer was she somebody disconnected from people. The resurrection had happened in her own soul and she was attached to the father like she had never been. But now she was also attached to people. God thinks that on the, on the day of the resurrection, when you get right with God, he not only wants to attach you to him, but to people. And it, it's really hard to stay attached to people. It's hard to love people. It's work, but it's practice. Because there's going, there's going to come a point when your witness is going to be not well-received by people out there in the world and they're going to do mean things to you and you're going to want to lash out and at those moments that's when love does its greatest work that's when it's at its best love does its best work when everybody else doesn't love kindness does its best work and everybody else is mean everybody can love people who love them what how hard is that you get to be like God when you love folk who hate you Family allows you the privilege of experiencing what it's like to practice that on a regular basis. And not only is it practice to be family, there's a synergy that develops between our relationships because we have gone so deep. And as I close, I'm not just preaching this out of, out of theology. I'm preaching it out of experience. Most of my significant relationships are 25 years old and older. I'm not talking about people who are called by my name. I'm talking about folk that God has joined me to outside of, of my 
nuclear family. 25 years and longer. And we've given one another more than enough opportunity to say bye. I've hurt them, they've hurt me. But we stay together because there's something about the witness of being together in family that says something to the world. Let's make family the fatherhood, the, the, the Trinity said, God said. Let's make family because that's the best way we can present to the world. They will know that you are my disciples by how much you love each other. Same principle from New Testament to Old. God does not have a better idea. He's working the one he started with. And it's our job to be a part of it. And he gives you the privilege of joining family so that you can be bettered and so can the world. Let's pray. Daddy, I love you. Thank you for your goodness and grace. Help us as a people to love each other like we love you. To love each other like you loved us. To endure. To persevere. To be kind in the face of opposition. To love the unlovable. And to have the cognizance to understand that sometimes that's what we are to others. And to be grateful for the mercy that we have been given by others in you. Help this congregation to be greater than it is. In the name of Jesus. Amen. People, you're great. Love you. Thanks for listening to this week's message. If there's anything we can do to help you in your walk with Jesus, please don't hesitate to reach out through our website at milestonechurch.com. And if you found this podcast helpful, leave a review on the podcast app or your favorite podcast platform. We hope you have a great week.